It's always challenging to come up with a lesson when you're teaching one time and you can't really go through a long passage or whatever. And this morning we're going to look in my second favorite chapter in the Bible. Most of you know that I love Romans 8. That's my favorite chapter, but I've taught on that a lot. We're going to be looking in Philippians today. That's my second favorite chapter. And I think I've taught on it before and most of it, but I probably didn't get as far as where we're going to go today. As you know, one of the main themes in Philippians is the attitude of humility, that we are to have this attitude of humility, and we all know how important that is in our life. That's If you look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, it says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of of others. That's kind of one of the main themes of Philippians chapter 2. And then he goes on in verses 5 through 8 to give us the prime example, the perfect example of that, which was Christ. And it's called the kenosis chapter. And it talks about the emptying of Christ, how what he gave up from when he left the throne in heaven. 5 through 8 tells us about that. And then in verses 9 through 11, Paul tells us how God then, because of that, exalted him, set him back upon the throne, and how every knee is going to eventually bow, and every tongue is going to eventually confess that he is Lord. And that's the section of the chapter, that that first 9 or 10 verses is what I really, really love about Philippians 2. But we're going to move on down a little bit farther for our lesson today. In verse 12, the tone shifts, and you can see he uses the word in chapter 12, so then, my beloved, so then is kind of a conclusion statement. We draw a conclusion from what I've said before, and then I'm going to tell you something based on that. Uh, And then what he does is he talks about our sanctification. Verse 12 and 13, he talks about our sanctification and our role in it and then God's role in it. And, you know, it talks, says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that's kind of that, that sanctification process is what he then goes into where he's going to explain a little bit about some things that we could have done, should do. And I think one of the interesting things is at this point he could have said a lot of different things about how we work out our salvation. And I think it's interesting what he said. Verse 14 says... Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's the big conclusion from being, you know, that he's talked about all this about Christ coming to earth. And then, so then we need to work out our salvation. And he starts out saying, do all things without grumbling. As always, when I teach, I'm first and foremost teaching to myself. And I was grappling with what I was going to teach on, and I kind of had looked at this verse, but I hadn't really decided. And the Lord has a way of kind of solidifying things for you. And so I was going to tell you about my day, the Friday after Thursday night, I looked and figured out what I was maybe going to teach on. And this is my day Friday started with me waking up at 3 a.m. in the morning with a backache and a shoulder ache and neck ache. And I was just real stiff and I couldn't go back to sleep. So I ended up getting up with only a few hours sleep. And did my devotions, did breakfast, and I, okay, I started feeling better. I got loosened up. Now I'm going to get all these things. Friday's one of my days off from work, and I have all this list of things I'm going to do. So the first thing I got Terry, you know, says, Terry, we're going to go to the bank. We need to open a new account because 
my bank account that I had for, I don't know, 12 years, ever since he's been here, all of a sudden was now going to charge me a $35 maintenance fee. They changed their rules or whatever. So I'm going to close that bank account, and I'm going to open one at the credit union. So we get dressed, and we hurry over there, be there right when they open, and we get there, their computers are down, and they won't let us do anything. They're not going to be up for hours. So, okay, I had to replan everything. Terry then goes on down to Pierce Clinic, the reason she's going to Pierce Clinic is because she had been T-boned in a car accident the week prior. Somebody had totaled our car within an accident, so she's going trying to get her neck and back in better condition, which is not happening very fast it, to please her, but it's she's getting a little bit better. But car's totaled, so I have some other things i got to do later on the day. But So she goes to Pierce Clinic. I go over to the bay to the house I'm going to remodel, and I'm going to lay tile. So I start mixing up the mud in the tile, the thin set, and something happened to me that any of you in construction, this is just a weird thing. The bucket breaks. The mud goes all over my shoes, all over the carport. So I spend 30 minutes cleaning out my shoes, getting everything cleaned up. I get back to laying tile. At this point, I'm thinking nothing's going right. I get to the tile work. I'm laying tile. I get three or four rows up, and a little spacer falls out. So it's on the ground. I push the tile in. Okay, that's going to stay. I bend over. As I'm bending over, the tile falls off, hits me in the head. This is an 18-inch tile. Hits me in the back of the head. The thin set in the mud runs down the back of my neck. And it just keeps getting worse. I mean, we, we, I get to the point where I just quit that, and I'm going to I go back to get Terry. We're, we've tried to buy a car. We have to go get the check for the car that was totaled they didn't give us the amount of money we thought we should get as as normal um that didn't go all that smooth but we get the check we had bought a car the night before we we're supposed to go pick it up we get as we're driving up there terry tells me that she just called they were supposed to tint the windows and do something else to it and she said she couldn't get a hold of anybody and it's just a mess let's just drive up there so we drive up there they don't know what we're talking about they don't know where our car is they, they don't they don't know nothing so we still don't have the car yet. <laughs> that was two weeks ago, and the car is still getting waiting on a part now. But you know, the, the sales manager, the business manager, the sales guy, nobody that was there the night we bought the car was working that day, and so, so they have no idea what we're talking about. So that's the kind of day I had after the day I talked about not complaining and grumbling, thinking about giving myself. So. You just have to laugh at the, the way the Lord sometimes works. But he kind of solidified. This was what I was going to go ahead. This is what I was going to talk about. And, and those were minor things. Well, <laughs> minor, yes. Th- think about grumbling and complaining. And I thought about America, the, the, the country we are living in, and how the richest country in the world by any means you know that you you measure it but think about how much grumbling and complaining goes on by the people that live in this country i was looking at some surveys online and i didn't quote them all but there's surveys out there that talk about how many people don't like their jobs how many people don't like their marriages aren't happy in their marriages how many people want a bigger house how many people want a better car and it just was on and on and on and on it goes how how discontented the people are and the media doesn't help they portray everything you know we're bombarded with advertisement trying to get us to not be content and to 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 move on to something better i guess a counselor told me one time that most of the teenagers in america had entitlement itis they felt entitled to everything and it's not just teenagers it's we feel like 
somebody always owes us that their employers owe them their parents owe them the government owes them it's just this this attitude of entitlement another byproduct of this discontentment is impatient you think about how impatient we are for the past 50 years with the use of credit cards and loans people don't have to wait to purchase anything and pay for it later you know we don't like to sit in traffic we want we don't even want to wait very more than a minute or two in a drive-through we're just very impatient people and all this discontentment breeds complaining and probably not a day goes by if you're involved in employment you know in, in a work environment where there's a lot of other people that you don't hear grumbling and complaining going on and the truth be told, sometimes we're the guilty party. And churches aren't exempt from this either. How many times have you heard someone grumbling or complaining about the service? Not here at Lakeside, I know. Nobody says the sermons are too long or too boring or nothing like that here. But, but you hear that a lot. The music's not right or whatever it might be. There's always grumbling and complaining can go on. And... You know, there's a lot of different examples that you can find in the Bible to talk about that. But, you know, the word that's used, grumble and complain, is used a lot in the Old Testament talking about the Israelites. It's, I thought we would review some of their attitudes, starting in Exodus. Exodus 5, we'll just run through a few verses just to get a feel for what was going on and how God feels about it. Exodus 5, starting with verse 22. Here we find Moses complaining to God that he didn't deliver Israel from Pharaoh as quick as he wanted to. He said, Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why hast thou brought harm to this people? Why dost thou ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in thy name, he has done harm to this people, and thou hast delivered thy people at all. We know that God in time did deliver them, but, but Moses was impatient and he was grumbling with God about it, complaining with God about it. Chapter 15 of Exodus. Not long after they were actually being led out, the people began complaining. Chapter 15, verses 22 through 24, it says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses and saying, What shall we drink? And we know that God responded by making the water sweet. He led them to an oasis. But their satisfaction didn't last very long again. Over in chapter 16, verse 2, it says, The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. If you read on, you'll find that now, this time, it was for a lack of food. And, and God ended up providing manna for them to eat. Then down in chapter 17, verse 2, it says, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water, the thirsty again, that we may drink. You know, and God had been providing for them miraculously, and they're still continually grumbling and complaining. This was a tragic time, I think, in the life of the Israelites. It's used as an example in Scripture in several places that we not repeat it. First Corinthians 10, Paul tells the Corinthians in verse 9, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, talking about the Israelites, and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So we can see that these, you know, the, it's not something that's new. And I thought, you know, they were grumbling about, you know, food and water and different things. What is it that we grumble about, complain about? I'm opening this up. I know we don't do this a lot in Sunday school, but... What are some of the things that we tend to grumble and complain about? Weather. 
weather, traffic, incompetence of other people. I'm sure you weren't saying that to yourself. <laughs> Anybody else? Too short, right. right. <laughs> Our spouses, different quirks and things. Yeah. Um, we could go on and on. There, there's a lot of things that, that we tend to grumble and complain about. Is it a big deal to God? I think the answer is yes. I mean, you can see from his response and, and with the Israelites that it is a big deal because when you're grumbling and complaining, what are you saying ultimately? You don't like what God has allowed to happen in your life. If you're complaining about circumstances or your health or, or even the weather, who's in control of the weather? Who's in control of your health? Who's in control of your job, your employer, whatever it may be? If you believe God is sovereign, and we do, then when you're complaining, you are basically grumbling against God, not you know against the person or whatever it may be. So I think that's why it's a big deal. James 5, 9 was a verse that jumped out at me. It says, Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. So when we complain against other people, other brothers, we're kind of... It's kind of like the take the stick out of your own eye kind of thing because we are all imperfect and we all have reason for someone to probably complain about us as well and we need to be merciful just like God is merciful. So verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. This is talking about as, as working out our salvation. As I said, this phrase refers back to this. As we work out our salvation, we should be doing it without grumbling or disputing. One of the main themes of Philippians, if you look at the whole book, is joy. This grumbling or complaining is the opposite of having joy, is it not? And that's what he's telling us, you know, that we need to be doing that, be having joy, not be grumbling and complaining. A similar word is used in Matthew 20:11 when it says, when the resentful labor grumbled at the landowner who chose to pay all the workers the same wages even when they had worked different hours. And I thought about you know, my work environment. For the last few years, I've been working primarily alone, but I used to work in a corporate environment. And it was very hard sometimes to not fall into the trap of grumbling about the bosses and their decisions and things like that. And that's the kind of word that it's using. What, what do you think of when you hear the word grumble? kind of a muttering under your breath kind of thing. That's that's the idea that it's getting, that grumble, you know, includes complaining. The word disputing is from the word dialogismos. It is where we get our word dialogue from. It means inner reasoning. It has the idea of questioning or doubting. In Romans 14.1, it is translated as passing judgment on someone. In 1 Timothy 2.8, is translated dissension. So grumbling is more emotional, whereas disputing is more intellectual. It is important to remember that doing this, grumbling and or, and, and or disputing, doubting, is a sin. And our verse says it's something we shouldn't hardly ever do, right? No, it says it's never. It says all things. Do all things without grumbling. It's always wrong. So every circumstance in life, even my wife getting hit in the side with a car... 
we are not to grumble or complain against that other driver who was probably texting or something because there was no way for her to not see her. It was, so all things were to do without grumbling or complaining. Later in this letter, Paul tells us how he has grown to this point in life where he was just totally content. And I love the verses in chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, where he says, Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both having abundance and suffering need. And the thing that jumps out in those verses to me is that he said, I learned it. It was something that he had to learn, and you learn sometimes by going through things and circumstances and getting better and better at it till the point where you actually have learned it. And I think that's why sometimes God allows a lot of things to happen is so that we'll, we'll learn from them. So after the command to, to stop it, Paul gives us three reasons for stopping this sinful action. That's what we're going to look at briefly here is the three reasons that he gives us for why we should stop complaining and grumbling. The first reason he gives us is found in verse 15. He says, So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach. So the first reason is that that's not what children of God should do. As children of God, we should not complain. We should be different from the world. The phrase so that is a purpose clause, which means that you know there's a purpose, there's something that we're commanded to stop complaining so that we will become like the children of God. We will be like the children of God. And he tells us what that is, blameless, innocent, and above reproach. And when you look up the word, the meaning of each one of those words, you'll find that they're all very, very similar. They have just a slight variation. I, I'm not a scholar in Greek at all. I just have to rely on the commentators, but it's amazing in the Greek language how many words that they have for the word love. I love a brother. I love my sister. I love my wife. I love my job. And in the Greek, they would use different words for all those things. And that's the same way here. Blameless, you know, is, is very similar to the other words, blameless, innocent, above reproach, but they're all actually very different. The first word Paul uses was blameless, which is at the root means free from fault or defect. And, of course, this is talking about morally without defect. According to the concordance that I was looking at, it was used five times in the New Testament, two of those in Philippians. Paul used it in Philippians 3.6 when talking about himself. He says, as to the righteousness which is the law, found blameless. He was saying he was without defect. Luke 1, six is used of John the Baptist's parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth, where they are described as walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. So the first thing he's saying is, sons of God, we should be without moral defect. The next one he says is innocent. The word innocent is one of the word akares. I can't pronounce these, I'm sure, which means unmixed or pure. It was a term used in winemaking when it was... Mixed with water, it would have been impure, but when it was not mixed with water, it would have been pure. It was also used to describe pure metal. The word innocent, was its context is meaning it was not mixed with evil. You know, an innocent person would be one that's not mixed with evil. It was used three times in the New Testament. It's in Romans 16, 19, where Paul says, I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent and what is evil. In other words, unmixed with the world. 
It's sometimes used metaphorically as something that was harmless or innocent, like Matthew 10:16, where Jesus told the disciples to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. So it's a little bit different. The next characteristic Paul says as children of God is to be above reproach. It's very close to blameless, and it relates to being without spot or blemish. It was used in the Old Testament about the animal sacrifices having to be pure and unblemished. It's used in the New Testament several times referring to Christ. One place I found was Hebrews 9.14 where it says Jesus offered himself as the lamb unblemished. So these words, all three, describe what we are to be, what our goal is to be as children of God. We know that we cannot achieve perfection, but he's telling us what we are striving for as we work out our salvation is to be free, unmixed with evil, to be blameless and innocent in this life. Even though it's all around us, we are to be unstained from it. So what he is, by inference, saying is when you are complaining and grumbling, you're not being that. You are being the opposite of that. You are mixing yourselves with that. So that's, you know, something that you we probably a lot of times when we grumble and complain, we just kind of do it nonchalantly, not even thinking about it. But that's not something we should do as children of God. So that's the first reason Paul gives us for obeying the admonition to stop complaining is because it is not what the children of God should do. The second reason is because it destroys our witness. The second part of 15 says that we are to be children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. And Paul's telling us that we are supposed to be and we're in this crooked and perverse generation, but we're to be lights in the world. And when we're complaining, we're not, we're not doing that. I started thinking about the crooked and perverse generation. It, it talks about being crooked as being, it comes from the root word that we get our word scoliosis from, a crooked spine, twisted. And, you know, that's not the normal state of your spine. And that, that's not the normal state that God made. This world was made in the Garden of Eden. It was all perfect. And what Satan and his followers have done is twisted everything. I was thinking about that movie that's just come out, uh, something about gray. I forgot the name of it. Um, Fifty Shades of Gray. You know, it's just a horrible, if you don't know anything about it, it's a very horrible, pornographic movie that takes um, the marital bed and sex and the good part of it and twist it and the, it's supposed it's the books have sold hundreds of millions of copies more than any book other than the bible and then now they've come out with a movie that's probably going to be a trilogy and it's going to break and shatter all records that's living in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation jesus used the word adulterous generation when he talked in matthew's places evil and adulterous generation and it's just getting worse and you know it's 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 nothing new it's ebbed and flowed through history but it seems like in our view it's getting worse but within this environment we are to appear as lights shining lights to these people and when we're grumbling and complaining we're avoiding that we're not we're not doing that i thought about the word light we are to appear to these people as lights how is light portrayed in the bible and the terminology of light and i looked at number one i think is that god represents light first john 1 5 this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. And I thought about all the different, you know, the presence of God was, you know, when you think about the burning bush, 
you know, the light. You think about Paul on the road to Damascus being blinded by the light, the transfiguration, the bright light, the Israelites in the pillar of fire. All, the presence of God was indicated by a bright light that, that man couldn't even withstand. And we, being indwelled with the Holy Spirit, we are little lights that shine into this perverted and twisted generation. And that's it's one of the examples of light. Light is used to show the way, as to light the path. You think about some of the Proverbs, you know, thy word is a lamp unto the, thy feet. And it talks about us, you know, as light being directing your path. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And we're to be that light. We're to, to show those around us, you know, the way to Christ. Light is used as a warning to danger. When you think about the actual meaning, when you look up the root words for light, it actually meant beacon. And we think of lighthouses that you know, used to dot the coastline to warn the ships of danger. So light warns of danger. Another byproduct of light is that it exposes sin. I do a lot of painting with the remodeling and work I do. And one of the things I found out after a while is that you need to have good light to do that very well. Because if you paint in a dim room or not brightly lit room, then when you get done, there's little white specks or blurs and stuff. So now I carry a portable light with me, and after the first coat, I shine it on there, and it shows up every blemish. Well, the light does that. Unfortunately or unfortunately, depends on how you look at it, we do that even unconsciously to the world. My wife found that out as she tried to warn people about this Fifty Shades of Grey on the Internet. She got attacked atrociously by some non-believers who were linked to her Facebook account. Um, but just trying to be light in the world is going to cause the people that are in the darkness to attack you and confront you sometimes. But that's something that we are to do. The light you know, shows all the blemishes. You think about sometimes you get dressed at home in the dark, dimly lit room with your black pants or skirt on and you come out and you see all the little lint and the dust because the sunlight is so bright and that's what happens in the world that's what we are to cause happen in the world as we live out a righteous and holy life it's going to help identify the sin around us not always a good thing in the sense of a relationship with other people but sometimes it brings it brings about that even unconsciously one of the things I wrote down and underlined in my notes to myself was, does your life make others uncomfortable? Not that that's our attempt to try to make people uncomfortable, but if it's not making people uncomfortable, are we really living the kind of life that we should be? And I thought about when we were in Israel, we had one of our missionaries, Minnow Callister, come talk to us, and it was a really educational for me because I didn't know that much about his ministry, but... He's a pastor of a church in Israel. And he, he made the comment that to his elders that we hadn't been persecuted lately. And he said, maybe we need to reevaluate our, our ministry and what's going on. Because living in the area that he lived, if you were living a righteous and life and witnessing and doing the things that he felt like the church should be doing, he felt like that's going to be a normal outcome is going to be persecution. So... I tried to take that message to my own self. You know, am I living a life that people are noticing is different? Or am I blending in and being so subtle that nobody is really noticing that? Whether we want to admit it or not, the unbelieving world is always watching us. 
my wife and daughter Angie are real estate agents, and they used to work in a brokerage office with a man who claimed to be a Christian, and they had some agents under him that were not Christians. One is the employer that I actually now work for, and they witnessed to him, and I've witnessed to him, but one of his complaints was about Christianity was, well, so-and-so, their broker, says he's a Christian, and he's no different from me. You know, he tells little white lies, and he does this, and he does that to try to get the deals closed or whatever. And he didn't see the difference between being a Christian and being a non-Christian because of that man's testimony. And that we don't want that to be us. We want people to be able to see Christ through us. Complaining and grumbling is not an act that portrays that the, the right way. Then verse 16, he says, Holding fast the word of life. Another part of being light is not just living by example, but proclaiming the gospel. We know the word of life refers to the scripture, more specifically the gospel. John 6, 63 says, It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Holding fast could be rendered holding out like the King James says, holding forth. And I think that's a good way of looking at it, holding forth. It's not really that you're holding onto, it's that you're holding forth, you're proclaiming. And I think that's the more accurate way to take that text. You know, that's the word of life has to be put out there. And it's not just the living out. I, I think I've told you all before that I, I feel like I do a really good job of living out the Christian life and witnessing and testimony to the people I work with. I'm not always good at holding forth the gospel in the sense of verbally communicating it. And I think a lot of times I want to rationalize that away and say, well, you know, it wouldn't do any good. That's not what the Bible tells us to do. We are to live it out physically in the way we interact with people, but we are also to hold it fast, holding fast the word of life in the sense of verbally telling people why we are the way we are, why I don't cuss, why I don't do this. And people need to know that and it needs to be verbally as well as done by living examples. If we, could go to church, if we go to church every Sunday or involved in all kinds of Bible studies, if we're actively involved in ministry and sharing the gospel and yet we are involved in grumbling or complaining, in some ways we're making void all those other things. How can we talk about the sovereignty of God how can we say things like to someone like all things work together for good when they hear us grumbling and complaining about our circumstances or our employers or our paycheck or whatever it may be? So we've seen two reasons to stop complaining. One, so we will become the kind of children God wants us to be. And two, so we won't destroy our witness. And the third reason Paul gives us is for the sake of our leaders. If you look at verse 16... After he says, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. He's telling us another reason that we should not grumble and complain is so that our leaders who are teaching us otherwise would have reason to glory, would, would, ha would have joy, is what he's saying. That, And I don't know if I could put Pastor Steve on the spot. What would be your goal as a pastor I mean, what is your joy as a pastor? Would it not be? To see that the people walk in truth. Yeah. I mean, to see that what he is teaching us and praying for us and leading us in every week is, is actually being accomplished, that we are being changed from it. I know even in my limited role as a substitute teacher, 
when I pray before I begin a lesson, during the lesson, is that it's not just interesting, it's not just that somebody would think I did a good job, but that somebody would be convicted, encouraged, admonished, whatever it is, that there would be real change from it. That's the goal of the leadership. Um, and I think that's something that we shouldn't take lightly. You know, we are told to respect our leaders, make their jobs easier for them. The Bible is pretty plain on that, that we should, we should be doing that. Paul says that he desires to have reason to glory. The word glory here does not mean to boast. It can mean to boast, the word that's used, but elsewhere it's also rendered rejoicing. And I think in context it's pretty easy to see that that's what he's saying. And that's the way the King James actually translated it. 3 John 4 sums it up. It says, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. And that's pretty much what Pastor Steve just said. That's what his joy would be, is that the people would walk in truth. And he says, you know, when that day in Christ, a day of Christ arrives, when, the, when it's all over, that's his joy, that he would see his people, you know, had walked in truth and grown in their sanctification and that's that's our goal. It's a simple lesson, but it's something I struggle with. I think, and if I've, truth be told, others besides me struggle with not complaining, not grumbling. And I think we don't always realize that it's hurting our testimony when we do that, whether it be to other believers or whether it's to employers and those that we care about. And sometimes we let our guard down with our family, and we think, oh, it's okay to do that with our family, but that's not even correct because you have to go back to the root of it. If you are complaining and grumbling, if I am grumbling and complaining, I am saying inadvertently, I don't think God's plan is best. I would do it this way. I would like to for this not to have happened. I don't think this is the best thing for us. And I, I think when you look at it in that context, then it starts to make a little different impact upon you. I'm done, and I'm, I got done early, so I must have talked really fast. <laughs> Anybody got comments, Terry? You didn't tell She wants that story. She thinks that story was really good. <laughs> when I told her about my day, she just laughed and laughed and laughed. It brought her joy. Yeah, that's my that's my goal in life to make my wife happy. <laughs> but well, the tile broke into four or five pieces. But um, you got up with a, a sword back and neck. Yeah. You go. Well, I didn't. I even left out something. I went to Home Depot and had to load the tile, and I re-injured my back loading the tile I mean I probably left out four or five things that that day this was last Friday, last Friday, last Friday. yeah a week ago Friday is when I started the, the lesson Joe had asked me to teach but I don't think I grumbled and complained too much did I Terry I was just <laughs> somebody have a comment Debbie I told you That's funny. I don't think they've ever gone on a trip where they didn't have a flat tire. It's like you need to just tie some tires on the top of the thing. Yeah. Thanks for good story. The kids love it afterwards. They all 
the kids love it much more than the adults do, I'm sure. I'm not sure where they are, but they've been waiting for two hours. Oh, so what time is it? He's, he's oh, interested. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Goodness. Well, let's pray for them right now, and we'll close. Father, thank you for our time together. Father, we do lift up this group of our church that's being delayed, Father, and we pray that you would give them patience father and that they would endure this delay graciously father and thank you that for protecting them and not letting them be in any great harm father we as we think about your sovereignty and your role in our lives father and how you are desiring for us as the ultimate leader to just trust you more to to live our lives father in complete obedience and trust and just take life as it comes knowing that you're in control and to be gracious through all of our trials and, and heartaches and illnesses and, and work issues. And, Father, may we be lights in our community with each other, with our families, with our coworkers. Father, may we shine, Father, the love of Christ through us. And, Father, may we do that in one small way by not grumbling or complaining, Father, but knowing that you are with us and your grace and your mercy is sufficient for, for everything. It is in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.